Please, if you have your Bibles with you, invite you to take your Bibles and open it to Esther chapter 9. Originally, I planned to finish off the book of Esther today with um, looking at chapter 9. And the only, the only, chapter 10 only has three verses. So chapter 10 isn't a, but I decided to split it in two. So today will be probably not a longer sh- a sermon, a shorter sermon than I usually preach. Uh, and then next week, we'll close off this beautiful, beautiful book of Esther together. <laughs> yeah, there's, it's sad. But you can read it again at home as well. That's, that's so nice about it. So if the book of Esther was a movie, I can imagine that this final chapter would be the highlight of the movie because chapters 9 and 10 is basically the, the battle, the war between the Jews and their enemies. Remember, there were two edicts, the edict of judgment or, or annihilation and then the edict of salvation written by Mordecai. And now the battle day has come, D-Day. Now, if this was a movie, I can see the slow-mo action of the axis and the arrows and the, the dodging. And finally, out of, with a very tough fight, the Jews come out come out at top, right? That, that would be quite interesting to watch. But for the author of Esther, that is not the climax. The fight is like uh, the postscript, the credits. It's like, it's like this is not the main point I'm trying to communicate, the fight, the war. Rather, the author brings out the main theme of the book and emphasizes the feast that follows. So the real climax is really the, the festivals that we will look at next week. But what you should not miss as we look at even this battle, this final section of the book, is a devastating twofold cycle. The first cycle will be the cycle of death, a cycle of judgment. That's explicit in the text as we're going to walk through it. But then by implication, we'll see the cycle of grace, which I believe this this chapter is meant to call all of us out of that cycle of death into a cycle of grace under Christ as we humble ourselves and put our trust in him. So chapter 9 picks up the main theme of the whole book. There's the key word that you shouldn't miss. I'm going to read verse 1 and you should be hearing the word that has been coming up over and over again as we walk through Esther. Look at verse 1, chapter 9, verse 1. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, On the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. Did you hear the key word? Reverse. That's the key. That's, if you want to, that's almost like one word summary of the whole book of Esther is reverse, reversals. Remember what happened? Instead of Haman being honored, the reverse occurred. And Mordecai was honored. Instead of Mordecai being hanged on the gallows, the reverse occurred and Haman was hanged. And now again, the third reversal is, instead of the Jews being killed and annihilated, the reverse occurred and they killed their enemies. And all of these reversals are done without mentioning God's name once. And what you should take away from that is that God's hand is behind all of that. God is working out his plans, his purposes for the good of his people. And as Spurgeon said, if you cannot see his hand in your life, books and stories like Esther 
should encourage you and lead you to trust his heart. Because our lives are often, we can't see his hand, but you can know that God is good despite your life, or what's happening in your life, because of books like Esther. You can trust his heart. Now, how did they actually gain the victory? Now, there's two providential fears mentioned. Look at verses 2 to 3. Verses 2 to 3, it says, The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. Verse 3, All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. So the people feared the Jews and the officials feared Mordecai. Now again, that fear, remember, you you should read that in parenthesis, fear from God. God is is giving this fear of the, of the Jews and this fear of Mordecai so that they would win. God is protecting his people. This is not random. God is working. Now, the author next tells us why people feared Mordecai. Now, I want you to read verse 4 and think of Haman as we read it. Okay, let's read verse 4 and think of Haman as we read it. So it says, For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. That sounds like something that Haman really, really wanted for himself, right? To be great, to have his fame spread throughout all the provinces, to grow more and more powerful for the officials to fear you, right? That's every narcissist daydream. Right, And remember what we said about, about Haman. He was the classic narcissist. But yet, who, who gets this? Is it Haman? No, this seems to be given to a man that didn't want it. More, it's almost like a, 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 co- a coincidence, an a, a add-on to his life. While the one that was searching for it, that was clawing for the fame and the power and the glory, lost it all. We are reminded again of the principle in Scripture that all who exalt themselves will be humbled and all who humble themselves will be exalted. If God is our God, there is no good thing that he will withhold from us, either in this life or in the life to come. Psalm 84 verse 11 is a verse that you should tuck away in your heart deep. Listen to this, for the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. What a beautiful promise that is. No good thing does he withhold from us if we just simply walk uprightly, if we trust him, despite what we, remember what Mordecai was forgotten for years before he was honored or rewarded. This principle is not just a principle in the Old Testament. It's a principle right throughout Scripture. And for us under the New Covenant and New Covenant believers, we must remember that the key to remember this honoring is that the emphasis is on eternity. The emphasis is not in this life that if you are humble now, then one day you'll be rich. Or if you are humble now, then one day you'll you'll be second in command or whatever. No, it is humble, humble now, glory later. It is cross now, crown later. Remember, Peter wanted to short-circuit short the cross. He rebuked Jesus like, you're not going to the cross. And then 
Jesus turns and rebukes him and says, get behind me, Satan. You're setting your mind not on the things of God, but on the things of man. So as, as new covenant believers, you should not be thinking, I just want all the glory and the fame and the power here. No, it is often suffering here. But as we suffer faithfully for Christ, we will be honored by God whenever he pleases. Whether in this life or the next, it's up to him. Matthew five ten to 12 is a good reminder. It says, blessed, happy are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven blessed are you when others revile you persecute you utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account rejoice and be glad for your reward is great where in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you james 4 verse 10 says humble yourselves before the lord and he will exalt you That's a promise. In his time, in his way, whether in this life or in heaven, he will exalt you. 1 Peter 2, 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. God will both reward us and vindicate us without exception. Every humble deed of love in his name, whether people see you or not, is seen by God, your Father. Jesus taught us that we should be content that our good work should be done in secret. Our prayer lives. You know, sometimes um, I, I just smile when people say, yo, the Muslims, they pray five times a day. Wow, like if only we could pray like that. But the sad thing is they're, just, they're ignoring the teaching of Christ It's a public affair where Jesus says, no, pray in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. That's our motivation is to, I don't want others to see me. I want to pray in secret. Matthew Matthew 6 was 5 and 6, right? It says, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. That's their reward. But when you pray, Go into your room, shut the door, pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Beloved, we need to learn to live before the audience of one. The audience of one. There's one person you need to please in your life. Above everybody else. And the irony is, if, if you want to please him, you also love other people as you should. Not as a slave to their opinions, as a slave to their approval, but out of genuine love for them. You want them to love God, so you love them. You sacrifice yourself for them. You please people in the good sense. Because you want to please the one who has given you life and breath and everything you have. So here at the end of Esther, I believe the Lord is asking each one of you and me, as I, I'm also receiving this from the Lord as well. Are you living for God's approval? And then are you waiting on him to reward you in his time? Okay. That's the way we should live. Sadly, we see the opposite point also made in the battle. All those who exalt themselves will be humbled. So we've seen Mordecai being exalted. But now the second um, flip of the coin is those who exalt themselves will be humbled either in this life or in the next so first the author shows that the battle wasn't hard this was an easy battle this was an easy win look at verse 5 
Verse 5 says, The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. Remember, the second edict untied their hands in the boxing ring, and now they could fight, and the Jews gave a knockout punch in the first round. It was a quick battle, quick fight. They did as they pleased with those who hated them. That's like saying, right, um, okay, trying to think of a good way to say it. Right, I don't want to say playing with your food, but because in this context it doesn't sound but they were this wasn't a hard thing. This was an easy fight for them. The battle belongs to the Lord. He gave the victory while they fought together. Now the, the author highlights the stats of war, and then he mentions ten names. Look at the ten names he mentions here in verses six to ten. It says um, six to ten. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men and also killed Parshandatha, Dalphon, and Ashfatha, and Poratha, Adalia, Aridatha, and Poratha, and, uh, I missed, sorry, and Parmasha, and Arishai, and Aridai, and Vaishatha, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hand on the plunder. So the, the contrast here with Mordecai is amazing. Mordecai has everything. Haman lost everything. R- remember what what was he bragging about with his wife? Remember he, he gathered his wife and his friends and he had a pity party where, you know, he, he likes a pity party with other people with him. And he invited this, his friends and he was bragging about the number of sons he had. You remember that? And now with the mention of his ten sons that are killed, that are lost, this is the last thing that he's lost. He's lost his house, he's lost his life, he's lost his sons, he's lost his position. There's not one thing he has left in his life. Everything is gone. What we shouldn't forget, if this sounds harsh to kill his sons, is to remember that the Jews didn't attack people randomly in revenge. They didn't go and search for Haman's sons, and when they found them, they killed them. No, remember, this edict was to allow the Jews to defend themselves against those who attacked them. This was a self-defense. So, the ten sons of Haman tried to finish the job that their father wanted to do. They fell into the category of verse 1. So just a reminder, verse 1, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over whom? Those who hated them. And verse 2, it says, to lay hands on those who sought their harm. The ten sons of Haman still hoped to gain mastery over the Jews. All ten of Haman's sons still thought that it's a good idea to attack God's people. None of them humbled themselves And said, look at what happened to our father. Look at what's happening to Mordecai. It seems like this Yahweh is the true and living God. Instead, they harden their hearts. They follow in his sins. And therefore, they follow in his judgment as well. They shared in their father's passion to annihilate every Jew. And so... God handed them over to the hands of his people in judgment. Now that perfectly illustrates a confusing and an often difficult passage in Scripture. Exodus 20. 
Look at Exodus 20 verse 4 to 6. I think what we see here is an example of this verse. It says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now many read that and say, but wait a minute, that seems unfair. How can God punish the children, visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation? That doesn't sound like a very just thing to do. Now we've looked at that in our growth groups as well, but the verse you need to look into and zoom into is verse 5. Look at Exodus 20 verse 5. It says, Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of whom? Of those who hate me. You see the point. It was not just the fathers who hated God. The children also hated God. Therefore, they share in their father's punishment because they shared in their father's sins. That's the point. And the point is that with wicked fathers, it's usually harder for you to serve the Lord. It's harder for us, for, for children to see the goodness of God, the love of God with a father that's horrible. And often children suffer under their father's sins. They, they suffer the consequences of their father's sins and ironically end up doing the very sins they hated in their father's. It's a vicious cycle. You see the cycle? That's the cycle of judgment, the cycle of death, cycle of sin. Unless the cycle is broken by grace. So Haman's sons shared in their father's punch because they shared in their father's sins. But if at any moment they would have decided to humble themselves and say, my father was wrong, we are wrong. We are on the wrong side of the covenant, right? And if they would have repented and joined themselves with the people of God, they would, their lives would have been spared. They would have been forgiven. They would have been incorporated into the people of God by grace. The vicious cycle of sin and death could have stopped with repentance. And we see this graphically in the passage. How exactly they shared their father's punishment. Look at verse 11 to 14. It says, That very day the number of those um, killed in Susa was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa, the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men, also the 10 sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, if it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict, and let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done, and a decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. Now whether or not Esther was right or wrong to do this, the text doesn't say. But what we do see is the point of the passage. The sons ended up exactly like their father because they shared in, their, in his sins. All ten of them 
also hated the Jews, and therefore all ten of them also were hanged like their father. Beloved, what an instructive lesson for you and me today. What the devil and the world would love for you to believe is that you simply are the helpless product of your father and your mother. And what they have done to you, or in in most cases, what they haven't done for you, has set your path in concrete that you cannot change, that this is just the way you are. This is just what you have to do. You cannot change. You are a slave to your addictions. You are a slave to your sin because if only my father, if only my mother didn't or did, But Christ came for the sick, not the healthy. Christ came to set slaves free, to make them new. Christ came to give you a new identity, a new family, a new father in heaven. The cycle ends with grace, with repentance. You see, so the good news is you don't have to repeat your father's or your mother's sins. That's the lie. That's the hardening of the heart that you should say, no, resist that. You can humble yourself now. You don't have to walk in their paths. Repentance literally means to turn around, to change your mind and to follow another path, specifically follow Christ. That's Jesus' call to us is follow me. See, don't follow primarily your father and your mother And if you had good father and mother, praise God. Thank God for them. But if not, the call is to follow Christ. Follow him on the path of love, on the path of sacrificial obedience. A path of resting in the love of your father who has chosen you first, who has loved you first, who has adopted you into his family. That's who you are. That's your true identity, Christian. So whatever you may believe about yourself because of the way you've been raised, it can can change. You can change. If you repent and cry out to Christ, even right now in the seat you are sitting now, if you cry out in your heart to him, he will save you. The Father will adopt you and the Spirit will indwell you. To cry out, Abba, Father. So in whatever cycle of sin and judgment you feel that you are caught up in and you can't change, remember, no, there is a cycle of grace. What does the text say in Exodus 20? We said God visits the iniquity of the fathers to the third, fourth. But look at what it says next. But to how many generations does he show his steadfast love? thousands isn't that one of the most amazing encouragements for us it's almost and i say almost with a it's a big almost almost irrelevant what your parents did to you or not for you it can end with this generation because god shows steadfast love to thousands to come if you but repent and follow christ and build your life on truth on the word of god And in the fear of God, leading your family or leading your life in the fear of God, God shows steadfast love to thousand generations to come. 
Do you know that? Do you believe that? The gospel says that you are far worse than you think you are, but that you are far greater love than you can ever dare to hope or dream. So right now, repent. Put your trust in Jesus. For there is salvation in no other name except in him. And for all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. That this day, today could be the beginning of a broken cycle for you. Just come to him. And for us who have been redeemed, keep your eyes on him, on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. It is his faithfulness that will change you and make you whole. So keep on living for the audience of one. Keep on following him, no matter if nobody sees you, no matter if you have to be forgotten for the rest of your life. Focus on pleasing him. Riches I need not, nor man's empty praise. Thou my inheritance, now and always. So let us serve our king wholeheartedly. And let us wait on him to reward us in his good time. Amen. Let's pray. I want to give a moment of just silent prayer. Just respond to the Lord now in prayer. And um, yes, let's use this time now to respond to him. Father, what a privilege to call you our Father. Lord, we confess that we often don't really understand how much we are loved by you, how great your grace is, and no matter our past, Lord, that you can redeem us, transform us, and make us whole to be the people that you have created us to be, to love you, and give our lives away for the good of our families and for the lost and others around us. Oh Lord, we want to follow you, Lord Jesus, for you are a gracious king, a good savior. And there is none that you have ever denied who have come to you in faith. And so, Lord, we cry out to you, Come and do your work in us by your Holy Spirit. And may we lay our idols down, our sins down, and be free, Lord, to serve you. For when we are your slave, we are truly free. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.